I want Christ to be the treasure of my life. In fact, I often find the wanting of him to be my treasure a more common reality in my life than the actual act of treasuring and enjoying him as my treasure. Is such an experience normative? It's a really important question, and uh, this time it comes from a podcast listener named Kai. Hello, Pastor John. I keep hearing your answers on this podcast talking about how we need to enjoy God's glory and be satisfied in Jesus and embrace him as our treasure, but I cannot seem to manage it. I always want Jesus. I always want to glorify God. It is always my ambition to do so, but I almost never feel as though I actually have Jesus or love the glory of God. Mm. I feel like I'm always wanting and recognizing my lack without being satisfied by him. Is this normal? Is my experience normal? Back in the 80s, 1980s, when I was thinking about writing a book, actually they were sermons first, on Christian hedonism, what would become my life passion and ministry, I wondered, what should I call it? J.I. Packer had written a book called Knowing God, and Charles Colson had written a book called Loving God. So I decided on the title, Desiring God. <laughs> I liked the ring of it. I liked lining up. <laughs> <laughs> behind those two guys. <laughs> but there was something oh so much more significant behind that title. I can remember in those early days of my pastoral ministry, walking to church seven minutes from our house. I've done it 15, 20,000 times. Regularly feeling in the early years insecure, a little discouraged, praying all the way to church for God's help, whether I was going to a staff meeting or a funeral or a preaching service or some tough counseling session. And I remember that two Bible passages dominated my mind for a, um, an important season in the, in the mid-80s. Um, maybe even longer than that. Uh, they were like the music, <laughs> <laughs> the music on the answering machine in my brain. <laughs> if if I called in for help, this would be the message <laughs> of my mind. Uh, one of them was Psalm forty two five. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. And we put that on a big sign so I could see it. <laughs> it was a big yeah. sign on the old sanctuary. It's torn down now, but for, for, for a decade or more, we had this big hope in God sign so that John Piper would take heart <laughs> as he's walking to church. So the so, psalmist says, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my help in my God. And you can see that this is the prayer of a man whose heart is not as full of God as it should be because he says, I shall again praise him, meaning praises are not spontaneously welling up joyfully from his heart, and he knows it. He's preaching to himself that God is infinitely worthy of being trusted and he's declaring confidence that praises are going to return. In other words, this is the prayer of a man who has tasted and known 
the satisfying preciousness of God is better than anything else, and he's not experiencing it to the degree that he knows he should. Now, that was one of the texts. Here's the other one, namely Psalm 73, 24. I can remember being called on to pray in many situations where I wasn't expecting it, and I pushed the button. You know, I called into my brain, (laughs) and this is the music that came out. You guide me with your counsel. Afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Now, probably, if there was one text that I could trace the title of the book, Desiring God to, that would be it. Mm. Whom have I in heaven but you, and on earth there's nothing I desire besides you. When he says there's nothing I desire besides you, I think that is the psalmist's way of saying what Paul said in Philippians 3.8, I count everything as loss compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Technically, there are other desires. We get hungry, we get thirsty, uh, we have sexual desires, we get sleepy. But compared to God, compared to God and his fellowship, all that he is for us in Christ, these other desires fade. We know, we've tasted but what kind of desire is this in, in Psalm 42 and 73? The key to its essence, I think, is found in First Peter 2, 2 and 3. It says, like newborn infants, it's a command now, desire. That's an imperative of the verb desire. Desire the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. And then comes this all-important If clause, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now think carefully about that with me for a minute. There are desires that unbelievers have for something beyond this world that they can't name. These desires may lead them to God. They did for C.S. Lewis, for example. But, But until a person is born again, these desires are not spiritual desires. They are not the work of God's Spirit Mm. and are not based on true experience of the beauty and worth of God. They are simply expressions of the empty place in our heart that's made for God. What must happen for those desires to be spiritual and and God-pleasing desires, the desires that really magnify God, is, is this. If indeed you have tasted, so desire God if you've tasted God. The difference between the desires of the non-Christian and the born-again person is the new desires of the born-again person are owing to a new taste, a new spiritual taste for God. They have seen something, smelled something, tasted something spiritually that is different than anything they had known before. So here's what I'm saying to to Kai when he says, I always want Jesus, 
but I almost never feel as though I actually have Jesus. I am saying that if by the work of God's regenerating Holy Spirit, you have tasted the true glory or beauty or worth and greatness of Jesus, that taste is present in all your wanting. It's present in all your wanting, all your desiring. And therefore, even your wanting is the kind of delighting. Even your wanting is a kind of satisfaction, a true experience of satisfaction in Jesus. C.S. Lewis analyzed the relationship between desire and satisfaction as deeply as anybody I know. He said, joy is the experience, this is a quote now, of an unsatisfied desire, which is itself more desirable than any other satisfaction. Let me say that again, because that's pretty, pretty profound for somebody like Kai to come to terms with. Joy is the experience, and he's capitalizing joy. Mm -hmm. This is what he means by true joy in God. Uh, is the experience of an unsatisfied desire which is itself more desirable. In other words, the, the taste of the desired in that um, desire is better than any other satisfaction, end quote. And I think he's right when he says that on earth we will never have an experience of joy in God that is not composed mainly of desiring. Hmm. In other words, only in God's immediate presence in heaven or in the new age, only in God's immediate presence is there fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore, Psalm 1611. For now, in all this fallen world, satisfaction in God will be in measure, not in fullness. And the most common way we will experience those measures will be in desiring and wanting and longing based on a true taste. If we have tasted the true goodness of the Lord by his Spirit, that desiring, as Lewis says, will be more desirable than any other satisfaction, and God will be honored in it. Yeah, very interesting. Thank you, Pastor John, and thanks for the question, Kai, and thank you for listening to the podcast. Search our archives, read transcripts of episodes, or ask us a question of your own. Go to our online home at desiringgod.org forward slash John. Well, next time we talk junk food, is it hypocritical to pray and thank God for a Big Mac value meal we know is not healthy for us? How should we think of gratitude and junk food? Wow, you all send in a lot of really interesting questions. Keep those coming into us. I'm your host, Tony Reiki. We'll see you back here on Friday.